0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Culture and Flavor is a podcast about food and culture centered in black and indigenous foodways, hosted by myself zella palmer right here in new orleans louisiana each episode features high vibrational conversations with cultural bearers chefs farmers scholars barbecue pit masters and more where there is flavor there is history join me on culture and flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise dancing cooking conjuring and inspiring your culinary journey So um, I am so excited today, y'all, to invite a um, an amazing um, podcaster, the someone who I really respect on culture and flavor, where this is going to be a special episode, a double episode. I have been following Joseph Baba Ifa, who is a Baba Lao from Miami, for quite some time. I've learned so much about Ifa and the just from his podcast, and I really think that he's transforming how uh, we learn about African traditional uh, spirituality by hosting a podcast that um is in English. A lot of times when you learn about Ifa, it's either in Yoruba or it's in uh, Spanish. So for his podcast, I think he's reaching a lot of new um, initiates, a lot of people who are interested in uh, Yoruba Lukumi traditions from Cuba, as well as she from Nigeria. And I'm just super excited to have him on this podcast on culture and flavor. So like I said, this is going to be a special episode Joseph Baba Ifa has about 20 years of experience in the Ifa and Odisha culture. He was born in Hialeah, Miami. Uh, he is considered to be uh, one of the foremost, um, one of the foremost scholars, and one of the foremost um, practitioners of Ifa and Odisha in the United States. He was exposed to eFi at a very young age, and through countless experiences spans over two decades, Baba has been able to identify key topics that will help you, help us on our Ifai journey. So welcome. Welcome to Culture and Flavor. Ibo, oh, Iboshi She.
2: she. Zella, thank you so much for such a lovely introduction and having me, and um, my regards to your uh, your viewership on Culture and Flavor. Needless to say, we here on Our Roots are very excited to uh this collaboration with you guys and, and touch on some great topics so everybody can benefit thank you so much
1: thank you so much so i did have in a previous podcast um, madame barbara chevin who talked a little bit about vodun and food we talked a lot about um marie Laveau and how she would bring food to uh, the, you know the prisons and to different people just and then ceremony and i really wanted to start talking about ifa and food I see a lot, social media has really, you know, put out a lot of information on ceremonies, on giving food to different orishas. And just even here in New Orleans, I see people all the time, you know, doing ceremonies and bringing food to Congo Square and being in practice. And I wanted to really get into depth about the the role that food plays in ifa and i would love for you to talk about some of the patekis, some of the ebos some of the adimus that you can possibly share with us they kind of paint a picture on what ifa is and how food uh plays an integral role in um in being a practitioner of ifa and what is ifa
2: absolutely so definitely um, going to be a complex answer there Um, To begin with, Ifa is a spiritual system or philosophy divination system that comes from West Africa, specifically Nigeria, specifically Yoruba land, you know, spanning from places like Lagos, Oyo, Oshobo, all of the various city-states within Nigeria. Ifa is accepted and practiced, and its priests, the Babalawos, are present and revered in all of the city-states, because each city-state... Um, worships a different orisha, but there are a couple orishas that transcend um, location. One of them is Eshu or Eleguaz. He's popularly known as now. Um, and of course, Orumila. Um, so these are the two orishas you're going to see all over the place. Right. So that's to begin with what Ifa is. When we're talking about how integral food is, food is integral to Ifa the same way it is integral to the body. And to really start to understand how important food is, we have to go back to the Yoruba culture in general. It's based on respect, it's based on courtesies, it's based on a process. You know, you see your elders, you hit the floor in do as it's known, which is basically you prostrating yourself and providing that respect. Then after that, we sit and eat and commune together, where, you know, no one gets up from the table until the elder is completely finished, whether that's him eating, telling a story, invoking a verse. It's completely contingent upon him or her, depending on the case, running the table. The table in itself is a deity. When we look at the Oddu of Baba Jobbe, it speaks of the sacredness of the table, right? Where the table actually went for divination. And it was pretty ironic because the table isn't the modern one that we're used to, the wooden square with the four legs. It's the ate or any as it's known, which is the ethera, or the straw mat, right? What ended up happening was, is there was a succession of beings and deities who did not perform sacrifice, with the mat being one of them, where earth didn't perform sacrifice, so the mat dominated it. Mat didn't perform sacrifice, so food dominated it. Then the king dominated it. Then the crown dominated it, and ultimately the only one who performed sacrifice was the fly, which is why Ifa says in the Odu of Ayobe, the real king is the fly, because he's the only one that can sit on the head of a king and not get swatted, right? <clears throat> so just going back to that pataki and seeing how the process elevates and seeing how the hierarchy works, you can only imagine, if we're talking about the importance of the people in this process, how the food is going to be offered, right? When we look at even the process of initiating a new babalawo, the monumental moment or public moment is the table where all of the brothers sit down. Everybody is served in order from eldest to youngest with the new initiate. At the very beginning, the apetebi um, provides the food in ceremonial fashion. Each item is sung to, right? And um, we don't move until everybody's done. And then once it's done... The process of ceremonially removing everything, providing the leftovers to an orisha known as eshuayankolo, so that we always have a moment to be able to eat and congregate and whatnot. And then, you know, we're able to proceed and get up from the table without iku or death consuming us. Because in the Odubo Sameji, it says that around every ceremonial table, death is always trying to find a seat because he's always hungry. So we move in a very, you know, um, strict and almost militant fashion to be able to get it out of this ceremony alive. So it just lets you know the magnitude of spiritually what we're working with in any of these processes, and they're all centered around the table. When we talk about the cuisine and the importance of it all, we have to go right back to Yoruba culture. All of the foods that are offered to the Orishas are the same foods that originally the Yoruba people consumed. Beginning with the condiments, whether it's red palm oil um, for the majority of the Orishas who don't have it as a taboo. Then we have Obatala's case where he prefers shea butter. Um, really can't stand red palm oil, Avoids salt, can't have palm wine. Um, the honey that's so you know associated with Oshun, all of these condiments that ultimately lead into main plates. Whether it's the Amala, which is made out of the full yam, which is very, uh, who's very partial of that is shungle. Um, you know, the snails that are offered to Obadala, Egusi soup, which is the, uh, the watermelon soup where Orumila is very partial to that. The fish, the rat, which is actually consumed. fa is a huge fan of that, along with Eshu. The various fruits, um, whether it's the bananas that could be offered to Ajeshalunga, that is known as Ogedeomini. Um, the other, you know, bananas that are offered to Shango, the watermelon to Ogung. You begin to realize that all of these things are nothing more than a reflection of the gastronomy that these people have consumed for thousands of years. Where you see a huge change is after the transatlantic um, diaspora occurred, you begin to see the Creole, Spanish-influenced dishes that are now being served to the orisha that, in essence, are the same, but definitely have a different flavor. Where maybe in Yoruba land, they were offering white yam to Obadalá. In Cuba, they were offering, um, you know, sweet rice and milk, um, you know, different types of desserts. Um, the Oshin, Shing to Oshun changed from, you know, a fritter to an omelet in the New World. So all of them are based in literature and scripture and all are legitimate, but you're definitely going to notice a difference. <clears throat>
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, I wanna, I was thinking about some uh, common saying uh, in African-American culture and in other cultures. Um, I put my foot in it, right? And, you know, when they're talking about food, that they put a lot of love, a lot of just their energy in it. Can you talk about any Patekis? I'm thinking about Oba and just, you know, how she sacrificed her ear to, you know, to feed Chang'o and try to show love towards him. Are there any Patekis that you can talk about that really talks about sacrifice and love and their food?
2: Well, I tell you, um, Shango was a very bad boy. And I'm going to talk about the (laughs) aspects of himself where he actually faced adversity. Because when we talk about Shango, you usually always see him in this exonerated position. The king, the dancer, the ladies' man, the drummer, all these different things. He usually doesn't have a bad moment. But when we go to the Odu of Edibere, or Odi Ogbe, was where Shango was Obatala's personal chef. And what occurred was is he was so talented at what he did, he would get his job done in half the time as everybody else, and then he'd go party, right? Mm. So the other chefs were very jealous of Shangol to be able to get half of his results, it would take them twice the time. So they said rather than learning from him because they thought he was arrogant or he was just on point like that, they said we're going to sabotage him and get rid of him to make us look better. So what they did was Shangol would leave all of Obadala's desserts prepared. Because that was Obatala's thing. Obatala's preferred offering is sugar cane or anything sugar-based. You know, that's why he says all of the white powders belong to me, and sugar is definitely one of them. So he would leave Obatala's desserts ready to go, and he would go to the marketplace or do his own thing. So the other chefs, knowing this, went in and put salt in Obatala's desserts. So when Obatala, in the evening, would have his arroz con leche, as we like to call it, and mm-hmm. um when he took that first spoon he was expecting this nice flush of glucose and he got all of the sodium he could imagine and he almost died um mm-hmm. from his high blood pressure so the next day when shango came in obadala said you're fired mm-hmm. shango was like what happened you know what what you, you weren't satisfied with the food you always liked it i didn't change anything he said you put salt in my food you tried to kill me he said no 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 somebody else must have tampered with my food and Obatala wasn't trying to hear it, so he kicked them out. So this wasn't a good thing because this was Shango's sole source of income in the sign. So he ended up becoming a vagabond, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, or a transient. And um, he had a serious issue, so he went to visit Orumila. When the Oddu of Edibere was revealed, Orumila told him his biggest mistake was delegation. He could not delegate certain things. He couldn't put people in a position to destroy him. Um, so Shango said, well, what do I do now? And Orumila told him he needed to perform sacrifice with fruits or a and then go to the marketplace and act like he was very busy. So when he went to the marketplace, um, Obadala was taking a random stroll and he saw his old chef Shango running around like a madman, buying fruit and selling fruit and just doing a bunch of different things. Obadala went up to him and said, you know, what do you got going on? He said, Obadala, I really don't have time to talk to you. You know, I got clients. I'm doing my thing. You know, I just, you know, whatever happened with us is okay, but I got other things going on. And Obadala quickly realized, he said, a man that works this hard would never sabotage his own work. There has to be something out of the ordinary here. Where Obadala told him, I really never believed that you would hurt me. But, you know, so many people spoke against you and you had no evidence to defend yourself. And Shango said, well, I'll go back if you want me to, but you got to pay me double and you have to fire everybody and I have to pick my own crew. And Obadala said, if you make me the best arroz con leche ever, the job is yours. And Shango put his feet in it. It wasn't just one, it was both. And um, Mm -hmm. when Obadala consumed it, he said, I can't live without this guy's food. So he went back, he fired everybody, he put Shango as the head of his kitchen and from then on, Shango learned that even if you are talented, you have to put extra effort in. You have to constantly be honing your craft, refining your craft. He loved Obadalao. Obadala was his father. And mm. um, he would put a lot of effort into it. And um, by nature, the children of Shango are usually excellent um, culinary artists. So that's just one of many examples um, of how cooking really played a role in each of the orishas' lives. But they, they all kind of had a moment where they were preparing something to eat because, you know, it's the basis of life. But that was Shango's story in a deep I'm
1: curious a little bit about just your own upbringing in Miami, you know, um, Hialeah, Miami, you know, and uh, I watched some of your previous podcasts and you just talking about kind of growing up in that area before, um, you know, gentrification before it changed uh, a lot, you know, I want to, I want to hear more about your own personal food stories and, just things that you might have seen when you were younger that also led you to ifa and eventually become a Babalao.
2: It's interesting because the first, I think, interaction I had with ifa had to do with food. I remember as a young boy, you know, and these aren't always the best things for us from a health standpoint. I think a big traumatic um, experience for me was realizing we're not meant to eat guava pastries every day. We're not meant to drink... (laughs) Four matas a day, you know, the pork isn't the best thing for us. But, you know, that's our comfort food. That's what resonates with us as far as, you know, the women cooking. And and we begin to realize that a lot of our gastronomy comes from the oppression we went through as slaves, you know. And we look at what's common, whether it's in the African-American culture or, you know, in in the Cuban-American culture, you see the pork is very prevalent um, you know, whether it's collards, whether it's with us, you know, the dirty rice, you know, we were really to t- able to turn really the leftovers into the main course, you know. So when you become a little more conscious and you, you try to lead a healthier lifestyle, you realize you can't have that every day. So but when I was having it every day, you know, in, in the Cuban culture, we like to feed our kids a lot because for some reason we're scared they're going to go hungry at school. Um, every morning, you know, there was a pot of coffee brewing. Um, coffee is in the Oduo Bedi. It's a very big ingredient in Ifa. Um, you know, the pastries, you know, whether it was the the cheese or the guayaba y queso, the meat pastries. I mean, the Cuban bread back then was amazing because they used to make it with lard. So that Um, stuff would just melt in your mouth, you know, and just uh thinking about what lard is now, it's not the best thing, but you know, it's, it's something you're willing to die for, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, Every day, I mean, you know, my grandmother, these women, these matriarchs um, that I love so much, and it makes me emotional because they would feed us, and you see my uncles show up, you know, our family, we'd eat together. Um, and now, looking back at it, it wasn't the most expensive stuff. I think my favorite plate of all time is literally meat and potatoes, or carne con papa, as it's known. And um, my grandmother would make it like nobody's business. So, I mean, things like that... Um, it's things you really reminisce on and, and you fall in love with and they make you think of these amazing people that really every day made sure you were okay. Um, so, But as far as like how food got me into Orisha, the first time I ever really saw Orisha culture in my home, there was a pumpkin, right? It was covered in honey and sprinkles and it was in front of an Our Lady of Charity or Caridad de Cobra, as we called it. And I remember looking at it, I was like, man, I love pumpkin. Because when I was a kid, they used to blend it and boil it. And, you know, it was very natural. I never had a Gerber or anything like that. That was unheard of. My, my grandmother wouldn't let none of that come through the door. So, and then okay. she had the time to do it. By the grace of God, she was in a position she could stay home. So, you know, when I saw the pumpkin, I saw it in front of this deity or the saint as we knew it. And um, I'm looking at it. And I'm like, man, that looks so interesting and beautiful. I want to know more about whatever that is. And I remember I talked to my grandmother's sister. I'm like, what is that? And she said, you know, don't ask too many questions. You know, it's this, it's that. And I'm like, okay. But little by little, that curiosity just grows. And ironically, La Caridad de or Shung ended up being the Orisha I'm initiated into. So it really, I have to say, that was the first experience where I'm like, we're not the regular Roman Catholic, Cuban, Hyalean family. There's something else with us. And it was, it was very, it was a lot of undertones. I remember every 31st of December, Um, We'd be getting smacked with some meat, like a nice big red raw steak, and it'd have red palm oil on it. You know, we'd clean all of ourselves with it. You know, everybody in the house was smelling like meat. But um, Mm -hmm. it it was all centered ultimately around food. You know, it really is the basis of give and receive. What do you give? You give that which is most necessary, that which is most prized, and there's nothing more than that than sustenance. So that food was really the first step.
1: On social media there's so much information that's being passed around and you know um people who practice different religions and traditions but especially in the Ifa culture there is you know this this information that's being put out there on you know offerings and which offering goes to which orisha which offering goes to which egung. Can you talk a little bit about that and just some of the misinformation that's out there? Because it's, it's, you know, you don't know sometimes who it's coming from. And some people are doing these things, but not necessarily knowing, you know, is, is this the correct information?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, the information wave that happened during COVID, a lot of it is good. Because there's a lot of information going out now where people were really scrounging for it. It's in your face now. So it's given people a lot of opportunity to be able to, you know, identify whether ifa is for them or how to at least get started. I will say that (laughs) ifa, though, no matter how present it is on the internet, is not an internet spirituality because there's always going to be nuances and details you're not going to be able to get from a video, whether it's being provided by an initiated person or not, right? I think the biggest misconceptions with ifa are those that aren't as commercial, you know, when we talk about offerings. Not all of Ifa's offerings are mainstream. You know, when we talk about dog sacrifice to Ogun. When we're talking about Oshun being the most beautiful and, you know, aesthetic Orisha, you know, eating a goat, you know, we're going through those kind of processes. That's when you really separate who's really interested in Ifa from a liturgical standpoint or more of a commercial standpoint, right? But I think those are the biggest... The biggest misconceptions right now is that the orishas always look pretty, um, that they're always going to be pristine. And I think part of that comes from the new world. When you look at the soup tureens and things like that, they're nothing short of beautiful. But the orishas actually live in the first plate ever, which is the igba or the gourd, right? And um, sometimes you have to leave an offering on top of an orisha until it rots, and it's, it's not pretty, you know, the smell, the this, but, you know, we're trying to get an actual effect because the orisha eats the energy that the food provides, you know. And, and when you even look at feeding the iamio shoronga the witches, you know, when they literally eat the entrails of the animals that are sacrificed, you know, these are the things we actually have to do to save our lives. Not everything's a key lime pie, not everything's a pastry, not everything's a beautiful arrangement from edible, you know, arrangements, you know, there's things that are very rustic here. And that's what really gets the results. But I think that's the biggest misconception is the idea that the Odisha's food is always going to look like something on Food Network. It, it's usually not. And, and I think that's something people should have aware before getting in. But, you know, the biggest taboos I've seen are probably the ones with Obadala. You know, he does not like salt. He does not like red palm oil. He's able to drink alcohol, but the palm juice or wine known as emu is a definite taboo. Um, this is literally something that could turn someone's life upside down. Another one that we have to be very careful with is uh, black palm kernel oil, also known as Adi. This is nefarious for Eshu as well as Orumela. This was identified in the odu of Ogunda Tatura for Eshu and for Ogunda Dio for Orumela, where Adi was his wife and she was unfaithful to him with his brother Ogun. And he ended up marrying her and Oromila stayed with Ogun's wife, which was Epo, or the red palm oil. That's why you see Ogun is offered black oils and Oromila can never be separated from the red palm oil. So I say those are some of the biggest misconceptions.
1: It's interesting because when you kind of look at um, even just the misconceptions about red palm oil, like it's fatty. And it was told, you know, in in the Western society, oh, don't, you know, don't eat red palm oil. It's going to make, it has too much saturated fat or it's not good for you. But when you look at a lot of the dishes that are prepared in Yoruba culture or in Ifa, it is actually healthy. Everything is plant-based. Everything is, you know, made with your hands and nothing is process you know i want you to talk a little bit about that because you know a lot of there are a lot of um folks i think when i'm looking on you know just talking to people in general who are trying to substitute um different foods and saying oh well i'm vegan or i'm vegetarian and you know i don't i don't want this but but food for um the Odisha's is quite different sometimes than food for yourself
2: absolutely i mean if you look at the characteristic of being divine um, those things don't affect you, you know. I honestly think, you know, on a comical note, I think the best offering to give the Odisha's is bacon, just joking, but because, you know, we'd love it if it was healthy for us, right? So, but um, needless to say, the Odisha's have a very different menu than we do. Um, I will say this, as long as it's ethically sourced, red palm oil still to this day is the primary, you know, fat or grease that's utilized to be able to cook. Um, I don't know what the ulterior motives on some people's behalf could be uh, based on something so ethnic and dear to our culture. I mean, we could only uh, hypothesize why when there's really no scientific um, evidence to back that, right? When you look at places like Brazil or obviously Nigeria, I don't know. I think we should be eating more like these people because they're living to be 100 years old. I just met a Baalau the other day. He's 70. I mean, this, this man was beautiful healthy. Mm. You would never know. He looks like he's in his late 30s, early 40s. I said, Baba, what's the secret? He said, a lot of red palm oil. So I said, I don't know, I got to incorporate this a little bit more. But when we talk about substitutions, substitutions are legitimate when they're necessary. But we're in a stage now where we're trying to accommodate ifa to the masses when in reality ifa is very thorough in that regard where it needs no augmentation. There is no such thing Mm. as vegan ifa. There is no way that someone could practice this spirituality and not at some point sacrifice or have an animal sacrificed on their behalf. There's no way around this. Because the same way that Osalafobeo says no child can be born without blood on his body, it's the same thing with Ifa and Orisha. There is no way around these things. Now, of course, you do it ethically you do it humanely with respect because a bad sacrifice can cost you your life, which is what my godfather told me in the beginning. Because when you, you know when you're young, you know it's a very a masculine position, it's a very influential position. He who's carrying out the sacrifice, whether it's in Islam, whether it's in Judaism, whether it's in Ifa, this is a very important position. And to be able to garner that respect from the elders, to gain that liberty, to be able to function at will, you had to have a certain level of maturity. So. There is no way around this, unfortunately, but, you know, our theological process explains that the animals that are ultimately sacrificed to Ifa have to go Mm -hmm. through this process to move up the spiritual ladder to deserve to be a human again, because it says that they did heinous things in the past life. So they have to go through this uncomfortable transition to be able to relinquish that spirit and be recycled back into the grand spectrum to ultimately be born as humans once more. Um, but as far as substitutions, there's certain things we can't get around. I mean, in ideal circumstances, but are, there are other substitutions that really saved the religion. For example, in Africa, they use the obi abata in Cuba, this crop really didn't give. So we use the coconut. You know, I've even spoken to traditional priests where there's no obi over there. Sometimes they'll use an orange or they'll use anything that has a front and back face to be able to divine. Cause at the end of the day, we're just trying to see if the, the the nature is balanced at that moment based on what we're doing. So, some substitutions save, but others deteriorate.
1: Mm. Can you also talk a little bit about syncretism? You know, because it, I noticed that a lot of people turn their nose up to Ifa sometimes because of the sacrifices, because the blood sacrifices, and when you look at um, you know, more Western religions today, like going through communion. You know, you have to drink the grape juice and the little, you know, the wafer, but that's it, you know, it doesn't go past that. And for those who have not been exposed to, you know, killing a live chicken or, you know, or actual, you know, your hands getting dirty and, um, and being connected with, you know, the animals and plants of our world, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of takes them aback. Can you talk a little bit about syncretism with other religions as well?
2: Well, I tell you, you know, I was, I guess, apart from if I was born Catholic, right? So their ceremonial process, I i commend it. You know, it has a lot of theory behind it, and I respect it. Um, you know, but regardless of which, once again, it's very difficult to substitute the blood of a live animal. It's very difficult to substitute the, the muscle and, and meat that's harvested to be able to make these ceremonies possible. I mean... For the longest time, I remember the elders used to say the most important part of the ceremony is eating the animal that we sacrifice, you know. so And, and once again, not to d- differ too much, but when you look at a wafer and you look at grape juice and it's gone through, you know, a ceremonial process, thus converting itself into the body and blood of Christ, as they say, you know, when you get to Africa and when you look at, okay, we just sacrificed this ram, take a bite, you know, here's the blood, you know, all these different things. It's definitely a much more humbling experience. And that's what he is meant to do is humble. You know, humble yourself before the animal that we just sacrificed, you know, and his loss, you know, his memory, uh, the fact that he gave so much to allow you to continue to be here. I, I think, especially with my children, I want them to go through the more rustic process because they need to understand life is much more than, you know, the random wafer. Possibly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in essence, they are both the same in theory. But I tell you, there's a much different effect when you see an animal transition, when you have to, you know, clean up after it, after it's discharged, like all of these, you know, things that are not pretty. I think it humbles you and it creates a respect upon which Ifan Odisha culture is founded. Um, syncretism, it's something that I think was necessary to be able to survive. I mean, when you have our ancestors being oppressed and killed um, for not assimilating a new spiritual system that was as foreign to them as can be, um, this was nothing short of traumatic, uh, a trauma that we still deal with till this day. Um, Is it necessary at this point? Is a St. Lazarus statue necessary or a St. Barbara statue? No, it is not. Um, Because Ifa and Orisha was around far before any of those archetypes were identified. Why does someone such as myself still incorporate them without interrupting their Ifa practice? Because it's what I grew up seeing. I think it's, it's mm-hmm. ironic that the first step towards Ifa mentally for me was a statue of Our Lady of Charity. So mind you, it doesn't play any ceremonial role whatsoever, but it makes me happy and it makes me comfortable and it's cultural. And um, for those that have gone through that ceremonial process with us, you don't hear a Spanish, English, or non-Yoruba word until it's time to actually talk to you about your signs so you understand what's being said to you. Everything is, it's as authentic as it gets on this side of the Atlantic Ocean.
1: So I also wanted to talk a little bit about just differences um, in opinion and beliefs. And you as a Bible, would love, you know, just your thoughts on this. Um, I think Cuban culture and Cubans migrating to the diaspora, Bringing um, Yoruba Lukumi practices has really opened up, um, you know, other uh, cultures to learn more about Ifa or get initiated. But yet in Nigeria, places like Nigeria, um, you know, it's still some uh, really looked down upon it. I think I remember seeing recently, Kailani had a song called um, "Altar." and she posted on our Instagram page. And it was really interesting, just some of the comments of people who don't necessarily understand what EFI is, or those who do um, in Nigeria, but yet you know it isn't something that they want to partake in and they look at it as juju or things of that nature. But yet in Cuba, it's open, it's unapologetic. In Brazil, in Bahia, it's open and unapologetic. And really in the United States, it's growing. Um, and I would love to hear your opinion on that.
2: Well, I will say this. Africa is the motherland. I love all of our Ishe brothers and sisters. I think their practice is beautiful, um, obviously authentic, obviously entrenched in so much tradition is what Ishe denotes by way of word. But um, the Ifa that has spread globally is the Afro-Cuban Ifa. And it was mm-hmm. under circumstances that were oh so painful. Um, had it not been for the slave trade, you know, if I would have never made it out of Africa, presumably, you know, it was mm-hmm. through this, uh, horrible process that we were able to migrate and we migrated to Cuba. This was in the Odú of Obeche. It speaks of the, uh, this process as well as Ogunda de Dura. And once we arrive in Cuba, after going through it for a good 400 years, communism takes over. The Mariel happens, nineteen eighty. And just like that, we are spread across the world where practitioners ended up in the United States or in Europe or in Arabia or wherever it may be. It was through these processes that Olodumari saw fit that the ifa that would expand throughout the world and be the most practiced till this day is Afro-Cuban lukumi fa. So as painful as it was, and, and unfortunately divine processes have to be sought out pain- painfully or, or taken about painfully, it is the one that ultimately was spread and has ultimately been the reason why people have gone back to Isheshi, Because a lot of the people who practice Isheshe at one point practiced Lukumi Ifa, right? So Mm -hmm. when we talk about legitimacy, you know, the thing is this, is to understand that the core context of what we're doing is the same. What really changes is the verses we use, the tools we use. I mean, for any Ifa, practitioner eshesha or lukumi to speak negatively or frown upon anything that is ifa centric no matter whether it's in brazil cuba lagos what have you is nothing short of of sad because the more we have this inter family dispute the more divided we're going to be and the weaker we're going to be which is really what's keeping us from being a recognized world religion. Ifa is a world religion already, but we are not recognized because we don't unify. And what I think is, is that on the themes that we don't agree on, we should avoid. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about Lukumi Bawalao being raised in a system, and we don't um, really have a place to incorporate our sister Yang Ifa, that's perfectly fine. You know, we mm-hmm. can respect each other, we can salute each other, Um, The same way in, you know, isheshe practice, they might not have a place for some of our processes, that's perfectly fine. But we have to both recognize that each of us are basing ourselves off of literature. The real issue is, you know, our literature looks a little bit different, but the idea that our ancestors didn't take some things from Africa that are no longer there is erroneous. Because you had whole clans that were literally transported from one continent to the next. And then when you look at Afro-Cuban, Lukumi, Fa and the influence it has from the land of Benin where the original practitioners of Vodun or Fa the Bokonons you know i mean it's it's understandable why we don't look exactly how they do in Ife you know there've been anthropological studies and research investigations done to show how much that clan influenced us and why our tradition is beautiful and there's no reason to really augment it but we can always go back home and incorporate things that we might be missing But also there's things we can offer to Africa as well. I think that's the saddest thing is that, you know, the idea that Lukumi has nothing to offer, especially when it's the one that has offered to the rest of the world.
0: Hmm.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And I'm just thinking also just about how culture spreads, how material culture spreads. Um, In La Habana, in Cuba, you know, they have um, a huge botanica that Echino runs, right? And then in the United States, we have um, so many botanicas. I remember growing up, um, I grew up in Chicago and there was a botanica in Humboldt Park in a Paseo Boricua. And, you know, that, um, just having those kind of botanicas in each city, I think, created a curiosity for even those who didn't necessarily grow up in Latino culture. Um, But now you're seeing like, People make huge profits, making candles, you know, doing all kinds of things. And I know that you own a botanica as well, you know, and what fascinates me about, you know, being a practitioner of Bifa is the simple, the, you use simple ingredients a lot of times for them to do at or different, you know, things that uh, offerings that you're doing, but yet it's become a moneymaker. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, my regards to Humboldt Park, talk about a storied (laughs) and historical um, place. You know, I've met a lot of brothers from over there and um, really a lot of culture over there and a lot of history. So, you know, regards to there. Um, How do I feel about it? It, You know, I'm very happy that people are finding a way to provide for themselves and provide to our community by having these ingredients within uh, a URL's reach. Right. Um, there's nothing nothing short of beautiful, you know, a beautiful expression of capitalism there. You know, we need more candles. We need more botanicas. We need all these things. The most important thing is ethics. And the most important thing is protecting yourself. Um, depending on whatever spiritual tradition you're focusing on, you want to make sure you're initiated it, in it because you don't want to ever seem disingenuous. I mean, I've been to certain botanicas where, you know, you see throngs of initiated people and uh, the owner practices a completely different spirituality, which technically there's nothing wrong with that, but you can see how you know someone can find that disingenuous. You know, when we look at the Odio Botura Irete, it says to have a botanica that sells Ifan Orisha products, the person has to and must be initiated within Ifan Orisha, right? To be able to provide ashe to the ingredients that you're selling just by your presence, just by your preparation. So there's that, and then when we look at the simplicity of ingredients, you know, it's just a a reminder that Ifa was here in the beginning. What was here in the beginning? Salt, red palm oil from the palm tree, um, uh, guinea pepper, you know, alligator pepper. Um, These palm juice, you know, these basic ingredients are a confirmation that Ifa was there in the beginning when all these things first manifested within life. They're all within the scriptures of Ifa. There's not one ingredient within any dish of Ifa or used in any ceremony of Ifa that isn't in original Ifa literature um, that corroborates it. So I I think that's what really um, pays homage to the the originality of it all and and how it was there in the beginning and how effective it is because there's energy and spirituality within each of these things I've mentioned.
1: I remember you also talking about, uh, with your mom actually, and talking about the role that women play and ifa and you know the role that Apete bees play i would love for you just to expound upon that and just you know just the role that they play in preparing the table after a ceremony
2: the apete b is the most important character in the whole religion in my point in my opinion when we talk about role right within any ceremony um it's also one of trust You can never have an apetebi you don't trust. You know, when we look at the Odu of Oberosun, which speaks of when an Ifa ceremony was going to take place, and some of the Brother Bawalaos were actually jealous of Oberosun because he was prosperous and was initiating a lot of people and he had a lot of influence. They actually um, tried to poison him or stick a nail in his fish, right? His wife, the apetebi, who was serving the table, who some people say was Oshun, saw this act of treachery, and before he was going to eat the head of the fish, which belongs to the elder, um, you know, she warned him and told him. And she saved his life, and he said, from this day forward, nothing. They had like a potluck situation. They said, nothing will ever be served here if it isn't prepared by the apetebi or served by the apetebi of the house. So, you know, the thing is, is the most important thing is education. You know, when we look at the role of the apetebi, if you just see a woman serving a table— they're like man it's a little misogynist a little chauvinistic you know i mean can she do something else but when you look at the history of the inauguration of that position she really was the lifeblood behind the whole ceremony we we can't finish i mean i, I look at my wife um you know when i'm going through um the hand of ifa processes or my efa processes there's a whole nother department that's functioning besides what's going on in the room to be honest with you the easiest part is the part in the room, you know. When you're preparing food, which is arduous, it is definitely a passion of pain and love. You, you begin to realize, you know, the people outside, the, the 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 warriors of the kitchen, as I like to say, they're they're on a whole other rank than us. You know, the people mm-hmm. taking out our chairs, the people processing the animals, the people like it's it's a it's a circus out there. Um, where I find, you know, my serenity on the other side of the curtain. Some people perform wonderfully there. Like, it, and I'll make another mention to a gentleman right now. My god, my godson, Travis, has become a fabulous alashe. You know, I've never seen this guy sweat, you know, and I'm over here. I'm coming out the room. I'm drenched and I'm just looking at him, you know. He's like making his own, like he's pounding out the garlic and he's making his own sofrito and he's, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, bro, you're over a hundred degree uh, stovetops. You don't sweat. He's like, no, padrino, you know. I'm the way you are in the room. I said I need to learn how to move like you because you don't you don't perspire, you know. So, the role is as important as it is. Whether the it's the apetebi or the Alashe who is the ceremonial cook. Ala means owner or he who covers or owns, um, and ashe refers to the ceremonial parts that are put in front of the orisha to be able to realize an ita, to realize a divine con- conversation. The oddu okanameji says the orisha must be fed um, to be able to speak. No one wants to talk when they're hungry. It's because there's, you know, there's energy within us that needs to be satisfied by way of this food. So, you know, it's it's really the most important part of the ceremony, the back of the house, as I like to say, you know, going back to my serving days.
1: Mm, and when within those ceremonies, as well as, you know, in other um, other parts of practicing Ifa, there's also a role that plants play. Can you talk a little bit about plants and any patakis that you perhaps uh, want to share about? You know, the sacredness and medicinal purposes and spiritual purposes of plants.
2: Yeah, I have a great one. Um, well, to be honest with you, plants were the original food. I mean, before we became hunters, we were gatherers, right? We were people of agriculture. So whatever you deserved is what you were able to receive from the earth, right? Um, there's a pataki in the Odu of Oturairete, Irete, which is my sign backwards or the Omoya, where Olofing. Um, became sick, the governor, however you want to interpret him. And everybody came to, uh, to try to feed him, help him, cure him, the doctors, etc. And he was basically paralyzed in his, uh, in his bed. Oromela was on a pilgrimage, um, you know, to be able to figure out said issue. And what he did was, is he performed divination... Where the Oddu the U was revealed, where Ifa said he needed to perform sacrifice to Eshu in the garbage, right? When he did this, he explained that he had been called to Olofing's palace to be able to, you know, cure Olofing and he had no idea where to begin. You know, the best physicians in the world couldn't figure it out and they were coming to him as a last resort. And Eshu said, Oh, don't worry, this plant that only grows near the garbage is what's going to save his life. But None of them paid attention to it because they're a little too ostentatious and they wouldn't dare come to the dumpster in fear of, uh, you know, dirtying themselves or their fingers. So Romila took the herb, which was unspecified in the, uh, in the story, and he made his way into Olofing's bedchamber, bed you know, uh, under the, the darkness of night and secret, and he fed it to him with a soup made from hens right? And um, when Olofing ate it, he immediately jumped up and felt amazing. He said, who are you and what have you done? He said, I'm Orumila. I've been contracted to save you. And I was able to do it by way of this plant. Um, So, you know, I'm happy you're feeling better. And Olofing made him his personal advisor. Orumila repaid Eshu by bringing him with him as well to be able to always receive his advice and counsel. But it's a perfect example of, you know, when we look at modern medicine, right? allopathic medicine it's it's very pharmaceutically based um you know steve jobs had a very impactful quote where he said eat your food as medicine if not you're going to be eating your medicine as food we need to go back to the basics we need to go back to our roots you know not to not to you know put put a pun there right but you know the basis of all medicine comes from these plants comes from osying, comes from the knowledge the ancestral knowledge that over thousands of years and a lot of, you know, hiccups, we've been able to identify the positive qualities from each of them. And that's why Ifa is so incredible because I could be about allowed and maybe my training is within direction of ceremony in my case, but you have other brothers who just dedicate their whole life and uh, career to understanding plants, experimenting with plants. And it's definitely not one that's wasted because it's, it's over there in Nigeria, you know, the holistic medicine is on par with the allopathic and the doctor works in conjunction with uh, the Baolao. And in Cuba, you see that a lot of that too, because a lot of the brothers of Baolaos as well, if things don't go well in the hospital, they'll be like, go see my godfather. And sometimes you can get a resolution with something as simple as, you know, I don't know, a spinach, you know?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I'm just thinking also just about um, just, you know, political moments in history. When you look at like the Haitian revolution, God New bless, Orleans yeah. culture would not be what it is today if the Haitian Revolution would have happened. Right. And, you know, and the fact that Haiti is constantly punished for that action and for also, you know, this mysticism or this fear of doom. And when you look at Cuban immigrants coming to the, uh, the United States, leaving you know, communism and bringing culture wherever they go, and then you see indigenous practices growing. People being interested in ayahuasca. People being interested in other forms of religion, hoodoo, et cetera. Why do you think this is happening in this point in history?
2: Well, I, I actually I want to make a quick note before I delve into my ancestor about um the Haitian Revolution. You know that action um, of Toussaint Louverture and a couple of the other names, unfortunately I can't recall right now, was the single greatest achievement for all Afro-Caribbean people. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at Vudung, um, when you look at Haiti, I'm, I'm from a, I'm from Hialeah, but, you know, I was always back and forth between Hialeah and Opalaka. So very high Haitian population. I was raised mm-hmm. with a lot of them and um, beautiful people. And they provided a glimpse of hope and um, triumph in, you know, to all of us, you know, of what we could achieve. So, you know, grace be upon those men um, and women. Um, but I think what's happening now is that people are looking for answers. People are scared. Um, COVID opened a lot of eyes, shut a lot of eyes, and people don't want to take the grain of salt that's on the cracker anymore. People want to find their own answers. People want to take control. People want to go back to their roots. They don't want to be caught off guard again. And you begin to realize that which is popular and that which is mainstream is only trying to spoon feed what's been given to us up until this point, which people are not having, you know, they're adverse to it. So where are they finding their ancestors? Where are they finding their answers? In their ancestral beliefs, within Hoodoo, within Ifa, within Wodung, all of these things, because they, they, they realize that now, how did we survive all these thousands of years before Walgreens was here? <laughs> and That's a good one. <laughs> it's scary. It's scary to think, you know, because the human being is an interesting creature because we are the most, we are the laziest, you know, we're looking for somebody to provide us the answer so we don't have to think. We don't want to go out and, and, and plant a potato and, and water it until it grows into another one. Ifa mm-hmm. says now we're in a stage where there's no other way, you know, I, I, we're looking at a stage now. My wife comes to me the other day. She's like, you know, they don't even have to serve real chicken at, at the restaurants anymore. I said... You know, Mm -hmm. where are we going to end up now? You know, so people don't want that. We we want what's authentic. We want what's going to give us results. And, you know, we have to look at what was here before the Industrial Revolution and what was here before modern man. And it was ifa and all these other uh, traditions, you know.
1: I just want to thank you personally for your podcast, our roots, Um, for my listeners that are listening. I mean, I think you can learn so much from our roots podcast and what Joseph Ba-Ba-E-Fi is doing is um, transformative and just really putting out some really important information and you know, just edu- the educational part of it and how cool and smooth he is, him and his wife. I just, um, I really admire it. Um, and so I just want to encourage my, my listeners at Culture and Flavor to check out his podcast. And I thank you so much for being on Culture and Flavor and, you know, doing this double episode for our Roots podcast. I mean, that's, that's it's such an honor. I'm, I'm fangirling. <laughs>
2: I tell you, we reciprocate all the accolades as well. We love what you're doing over there, you know, being you. real foodies. You know, my Instagram is three things. Me acting like I'm trying to work out, Ifa, <laughs> a cigar, a cigar and, uh, you know, food, right? So, yes. um, you know, I give all accolades to my wife. You know, the, the channel is really her child. Um, I just mm-hmm. show up and go to work, but she's the real brains. You know, gentlemen such as Phil and his organization, they've... Uh, facilitated things wonderfully for us and you know to your viewers as well as mine um study um, get around mm-hmm. good people listen to valid information through verified people and you'll begin to realize that if can provide solutions where um nowhere else, no one else can so I, I think that's where the real the real that's benefit true. is going to come from
1: and you are always welcome to come and visit New Orleans. You and your wife and your family. So just
2: wanted to put wait. that out there. I can't wait oysters. That's what we want to get oysters. Yes, char grilled
1: oysters.
2: Some gumbo, some dirty rice, yes. man. That's what I'm all about. You
1: got it. All right. Thank you so much for joining Culture and
2: Flavor. God bless you, Zella. Thank you guys. God bless you.